I'm Matt Cremens, and I'm going to be your host for today. Uh, I'm the Ocean Insight Solutions Engineering Manager, and I've got two guests with me today, Senior Scientist Ethan Montag and James Gass, Calibration Lab Manager and Senior Applications Engineer. Ethan has a PhD in experimental psychology, and his expertise is in vision, color science, and psychophysics. After working in machine vision for a decade, Ethan joined Ocean Insight in 2017, where he applies his knowledge of data analysis, color science, and psychophysics to developing and improving our products. Our other contributor today will be James Gass, Calibration Lab Manager and Senior Applications Engineer. James earned his PhD in applied physics from the University of South Florida and has worked in light measurement industry for 11 years. His experience has been used to create bespoke customer solutions, including, including complete hardware and software systems. Welcome, guys. And I think we'll start off with um, the broadest question of all, which is what is color? James, you want to start off? Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you. So what is color? It's a, it's actually a very complicated question, hence there's a whole color science. But um, it um, really, it's, it's one of the ways in which humans perceive light. So the easy dimension to understand of human perception of light is intensity, right? So if I increase the power of a light bulb, uh, we see that it has more output. It looks brighter. It looks more intense. Color is another dimension of perception that is separate from intensity. And so I'll sort of discuss the origin of it and we'll understand a little bit why it's kind of complicated. So within our eyes, we've got uh, four distinct receptors. Um, so one of those receptors are, are called rods, and those are responsible for low light uh perception. So they think of like night vision. The rods, however, do not really perceive color, and there's only one type of rod. Um, we have another uh, receptor within the eye called cones, and there's actually three types of the cones. And the cones respond differently to different wavelengths of light. And this is really the origin of color vision. So um, their responses uh, are, are frequently referred to as short, uh, medium, and long wavelengths. Uh, they roughly correlate to blue, green, and yellow. Uh, you would think that it's uh, blue, green, and red, but it's actually not not correct. The one that most people think of as red is, is peak is actually really about yellow. And in fact, it's really interesting too, because when you look at the curves, you'll see that the, that, that green and that yellow curve they actually overlap quite a bit. They're they're sitting uh, really almost on top of each other. They're, they're, there's a lot of overlap there, as opposed to the blue receptor, which is quite far away. Uh, the, but they all three overlap, uh, which is an important aspect of color vision too. So so you've got these three receptors in your eyes. They respond to different wavelengths differently. Um, they've got overlapping regions of response though, and actually that overlapping region is critical to color perception. Uh, but it also makes the models very complicated. So the other thing that, that we should think about with, with color vision, so you've basically got these, your eyes are, you know, in a way they're like wavelength sensors, uh, but you only have three of them. And that's important because when you think of a spectrum of light, there's really many, many, many different wavelengths uh, that are covered within human vision. So human vision goes from about 380 nanometers to 780 nanometers. And you know, you can have many, many wavelengths in there. Um, but even though there's 
in theory, infinite different spectra, they have to collapse down to a three-dimensional space. That's that's your, your eye. You've got three receptors. And so as a result, two spectra could look quite different and yet be perceived as the same same color. And so in, in color sciences, that's called metamorphism. It's a very interesting thing we'll I, I think we'll get to probably later when we, we dig deeper into some of the color color stuff. So that's kind of a, a really good overview of, of what color actually is. And then there's also some kind of segments of color color measurement in particular. There's there's emissive and reflective color measurements. Um, so so what is the difference between those type of measurements? Yeah, so let me, let me, I'll start with emissive. Uh, and so emissive is sort of the basis that, that sort of reflective is based on too. And Ethan is definitely the, the expert on the reflective color. So, um, emissive color really, it means measuring the color of something as the term sounds that is emitting light. So, uh, you're talking about a light source, really an LED, a light bulb, uh, maybe a computer monitor, uh, the sun a flame, um, or even bioluminescent things like, uh, fireflies and stuff like that. So, so you're actually measuring the thing that produces the light directly. The other one is reflective color, which is looking at color reflecting off of a surface. And so uh, I'll let Ethan describe that a little bit better. Okay. Um, well, reflective color is probably what most people think of when they talk about think about the color of a surface. And so what happens is you have an illuminant, a light bulb or the sun or whatever shining on an object and the object has a reflective property that is so it it reflects light at different wavelengths by different amounts. And then that reaches your eye and as James described before, there's uh, the cones that detect the light. So the product of the illumination and the reflectance and the sensitivity of your cones gives the color signal. So when we looked at, look at an object, the cones are compared and we get a color from it, but it's a little bit more complicated than that because um, it takes into account the color of the illumination to determine what the white, what looks like white when you're looking at something. And also the texture and geometry of an object affects its appearance. So if you have uh, something that's matte, it has a uh, light that reflects in all different directions uniformly and if you have something that's glossy then the reflection of the illumination will come off more directionally in a particular direction and it gives things um, their characteristic appearances like something that's uh, metallic um, that you can perceive because of its uh, spectral characteristics and things that are um, uh, matte like a plain piece of paper or uh, fabric things like that and uh because the appearance of objects are affected by their geometry, we have to be careful about the way that we measure them. And so um, there's international standards that have uh, been developed over the years so that when you measure surface reflectance, you use particular geometries um, so that you can define how an object is being measured. Because part of um, color measurement is not only measuring the color, but it's a way to communicate the color. So you have to have defined ways of making measurements. Excellent. I think that that's a great um, segue into kind of the next topic I wanted to talk about. So, you know, obviously as humans, you know, you, you pick up an object and you can move it around and your brain works in other ways besides your receptors to kind of make a, a judgment of what that what the color is and, and, you know, what material that is and everything else with a, with a color measurement device. Um, 
you know, it's a machine, so it, it, it can't do all those things that kind of as quickly as a human can. Um, so I think one of the ways that, that you get around that is by standardizing how you measure color. So James, you want to talk a little bit about some of the standard ways that, that have been developed through the years uh, to, to measure color? Yeah, yeah, sure. So it, it's an interesting point that you made about the way humans move things around. I saw, and I, I wish I could remember the reference right now, but I saw uh, an article uh, a while back saying that the natural instinct of somebody when they're trying to judge color, like if you hand somebody a bunch of color tiles and say, sort these by, you know, orangeness or something, um, that they sort of instinctually turn it away from the glossy reflection. You know, they, they try to catch the light so that the uh, diffuse reflection is really how they're judging it. Um, and so I, I think, and Ethan, uh, t tell me if you've seen this too, I think the, the off-axis color measurements are usually how the standards are set up. So like a diffuse illumination and an eight-degree measurement is like one of the very common ones. Uh, I think there's another one where you illuminate at zero degrees and then your probe is set off at like a 45 degree angle. So you're, so you're not catching that specular reflection. I and I believe they find that correlates closer to how humans judge things. What are some of the common geometries you've seen, Ethan? Well, uh, you're right. They have um, uh, typical methods of illumination is to illuminate with uh, a directional light source. So, uh, for example, our spectrophotometers have light source at eight degrees from uh, vertical, and the uh, light is then the reflected light is then collected in an integrating sphere. And then your option is you could have a hole in that integrating sphere to let the specular reflection from that eight degree light go out of the sphere and not be part of the measurement, or you could have it included. And for different types of materials, um, you might decide that whether you want to have that specular light included or excluded in your measurement. Um, so, for example, we make uh, uh, measurement devices that can, can do both at the same time. So it correlates with the color that... Uh, the person who's making the measurements or wants the measurements made for it um, is more interested in. So if you have um, an object that's glossy, you might want to have the specular light included because it gives a better correlation to what people see than when it's excluded. Um, there's also, um, like you said, 45-0 measurements where the light is um, directed at the object of 45 degrees and then it's measured at uh, normal perpendicular to the object and so any specular reflection from that is is totally omitted from the measurement and that's like the case you're talking about if you have something that's glossy and you tilt it away so that you don't see any of the specular light coming off of that object um, and again like I mentioned before a lot of these measurement geometries are defined so that when you want to communicate what your color is that's part of um, the specification for that um, communication Right. Yeah. And I, that's a good point. You really, you really do have to specify that geometry or else it's almost meaningless. Another thing that the standard bodies have uh, come up with is two different uh, standard observers. So um, st these standard observers are part of the specification of the color. And there's the two degree observer and the 10 degree observer. The two degree observer measures is usually used to measure uh, small spots and the 10 degree observer 
as the name implies, is used to measure larger spots because throughout the literature, through experiments with people um, making color matches and judging colors, they found that there's a difference in their behavior if you use a small color, uh, if you're looking at a small color or a large color. So they, they standardize two different observers for the specification of the color measurements that you're making. James, you want to talk a little bit about kind of the, the origin of the observer and, you know, which to choose when? Yeah, okay. That's a good question. Thanks. Um, so so just to be clear, what 2 degree and 10 degree means is it's the field of view that the color sample uh, fills within your human vision. So this kind of got started. So in 1927, when they began the experiments uh, that eventually became the standard published in 1931, um, they... Th- thought for some reason that the field of view for color perception really was like primarily in that two degree uh, cone in the center of the eye. Um, and it's they're, they were they're kind of right on this. So the eye has the highest density of cones in the direct center of your vision. Um, the, in fact, there's zero rods in the in the dead center of your vision. It's 100% cones and they're very densely packed. Uh, even more packed than they are as, as you get further out from the center. And so what this does is it gives the human eye the, the highest resolution and the highest color discrimination right in the center of the field of vision. But ironically, it also gives you the poorest dark vision. And so uh, any amateur astronomers out there or anybody that's really spent time looking at the sky, um, th- there's a trick that you learn. If you're trying to look at a very faint star, you, you don't look directly at it. You actually look off to the side of it slightly and you'll, and you'll be able to see stars that, uh, that, that you normally can't see if you look slightly to the side of them. Uh, and that, again, is because what you're doing by looking to the side of the star is you're actually having the image form on part of the eye that has some of those rods instead of the center where those rods are, are missing. So in the 60s, they they began, you know, uh, looking at their their studies and their data, and they, and they realized that there really is more... Uh, there really are cones that go further out than just that two degree area. And so they repeated the measurements with a 10 degree spot. So it's a much larger spot. So what is 10 degrees? Put your uh, palm out at arm's length and basically your palm is about a 10 degree spot. Um, and so that they ran a set of the color matching experiments again using using that size spots. And that became the, the 1964 publication. Uh, which was an addendum to the to the color measurement, uh, and what they found was, it, as Ethan said, it's slightly different. Like uh, how you behave with the two degree and the color matching and the ten degree is slightly different. Um, so by and large, ten degree, from my experiences, is and from what I've read, really is what what you should be using to match human perception. Most things you look at, you're not looking at a two degree spot. That's very tiny. You're usually looking at a whole wall of paint or you know, a very large emitting surface or something like that. Unless you're looking at like a very small emitting diode or something, you, you really should be looking at the probably the 10 degree observer. What's interesting is you do run into these old standards uh, that have been written for a long time that started with the two degree observer and they don't really want to move away from them. These are like industrial uh, quality checks and these types of things, food safety and and these things. Some Some of them use color as a method of of uh, quality control. And so you will find that there are still places where people use the two degree observer, uh, even though it is agreed upon that the 10 degree observer really correlates better to human vision 
usually. Um, so, so the short answer is use 10 degree observer unless you're trying to comply to a specific standard that uses the two degree observer. So we've kind of talked about, you know, what color is some of the, the theory behind how, how we transfer, you know, human perception of color into data that we can make color measurements with a machine with. And both Ethan and, and James kind of work in, in, in the solutions and application space. Um, so what kind of, color uh measurements uh have you guys do you guys uh work on projects for um james i know that you're more of an emissive guy and and uh <laughs> ethan doing more reflective stuff so maybe each of you could talk a little bit about the kind of equipment you use to measure those those things and um yeah let's see where it goes from there so so james for emissive stuff so, so what are emissive examples? Let me give, uh, you know, I gave some of those already, but why, why would somebody want to do emissive color measurement? I mean, real world examples that have worked on are, uh, LED sorting, you know, so when they produce LEDs, the manufacturing process control is really not tight enough to keep the colors consistent. And so what is the industry standard is to actually measure and sort the LEDs. And so you'll have a, a number of different whites that end up getting separated into one bin because they're slightly bluish and then a number of ones that are slightly reddish getting separated into another bin. Uh, and that's really how they guarantee that, that, they, that they look similar and, and they want them to look similar because, um, a lot of it really is just sort of aesthetic. Uh, you know, if you, if you're in a very high end jewelry store, for example, and they're using white light LEDs to illuminate the countertops, they really don't want a lot of blotchy, subtle color variations, you know, across the illumination that, you know, if they're selling very expensive merchandise, they're, they really, it's all about the looks, right? And so color matching in a scenario like that is, is considered very viable for those vendors. Um, for monitors and that type of stuff, I mean, obviously we want our images when we watch videos, nature and that type of stuff, we want those colors to be rendered correctly. And so that's another emissive example um, where where it is used, you know, uh, all across the whole industry. So it can be, color measurements can be done with color imagers. So uh, we, we don't really specialize in color imagers, but I will discuss them. Uh, so the color emitters basically have three sensors that try to match the responsivity functions, uh, of, of the color model, basically. So they've, they've got these filters that they put on. So there's one that's kind of, uh, you know, the, the red filter that matches the, the, although it's really peaks at yellow, right? In the human eye. And then there's a green one that goes over another sensor. And then there's a, a blue one that goes over another sensor. And they try to match the human eye response so that they're, they're, it's acting really like a simulated human eye. Um, but there's another way to do it too. Um, you can do it with a spectrometer. So a spectrometer has really a whole bunch, you know, I mean, 2000 or so bins that it's binning the light into. And then what you can do when you have the whole spectrum is you can just use math to apply the, the weighting functions of the human eye response. So you can simulate with the whole spectrum what the short cones look like, what the medium cones look like, and what the long cones look like. Um, so that's really primarily how we do it uh, at Ocean is we have got the spectrometers, uh, we calibrate them so that the response is, is known and flat, and then and then you can do your emissive color measurements with them. Thanks, James. Um, you want to talk about, you know, how we do that with reflective measurements, Ethan? Sure. So um, you can imagine a scenario where you're uh, producing uh, 
your product, uh, I'll call them your widget, and your widget might be assembled from different parts. And uh, sometimes the parts are made in different places, and when you assemble them, you want the different parts to uh, to match. So um, if they don't match, people will not like the way they look, and they won't buy your product. Um, so you want to measure, what one scenario is you want to measure the different parts and make sure that they're within a certain tolerance of each other so that when you assemble your, your product or put them next to each other in your store, they'll all be the same, be perceived as the same color. Um, now in the old days, you would, you might, uh, before you were, you had the ability to measure color very precisely. You might have an expert, um, with uh, very good color discrimination and training who would look at um, a sample from a batch of your product and uh, compare it to standard and decide whether that batch matched or didn't match. Um, but if that person became fatigued or was out for the day, you'd be out of luck. So um, we can use a, a color measurement device like the spectrophotometer spectrophotometer that James described, which measures the complete spectrum and then computes what the uh, color of it is for a standard observer and use that to determine your tolerances for um, your measurements. And when you do it with a machine like a spectrophotometer, um, not only do you gain precision because you can be much more precise than a human observer, but you can also gain speed. And so you can... Uh, start doing it for more than just one sample per batch. You can check um, many of your your product uh, very quickly in a factory, um, and that that way um, the very the batch variation doesn't become a problem anymore. Um, you can uh, you can check you know everything much more quickly and more accurately than a human can do it. Excellent, thanks, Ethan. Something we haven't got, kind of delved into is um, you know. Obviously, things look different under different lighting. Everyone's kind of gone into the, a bathroom and, and seen what you look like in kind of a bad lighting. Um, and uh, the same goes for, for everything, really. So maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, the different illuminants and how we handle things being presented under different lighting conditions um, and some of the advantages of using a spectrophotometer to make those measurements. Sure. Um so, um, you know, as we talked about before, part of the perception of color is the color of the illuminant. Um, it's the product of that and the reflectance factor and your eye sensitivity that gives the color. Um, so when you look at an object, the color is influenced by the, the illuminant. There's, so there's a, a couple of things that can happen. It, one is illuminant metamerism. So you can have two colors that match under one illuminant, and then you um, go under another illuminant, and they don't match anymore. And people might have experienced that, like when they're uh, put on a, a shirt and pants, and the, the colors match when they're in their bedroom under some sort of incandescent light. And when they get to work under fluorescent lights, they, they don't match anymore. So when you make a measurement with a spectrophotometer, um, it measures the spectral reflectance, and... Um, because you have that information, you can apply any illuminant that you want. Um, if you're interested in having colors match in your store and your store is illuminated by uh, fluorescent lights, then you can make that calculation and make sure all the objects, uh, all the parts match so that you can account for the illuminant metamerism um, in your store. 
part of the specification of a color is the uh, illuminant. And so there's different types of illuminants um, that have been standardized. For example, there's F2 for a certain type of fluorescent illumination. And there's different uh, daylight colors, such as D50 or D65, where the number uh, is associated with the color temperature. And uh, just like in design, uh, a higher color temperature relates to the uh, warmer colors and a, and a lower color temperature relates to the cooler uh, colors. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that you might be familiar with with your uh, the monitor on your computer, where you can set it for different color temperatures if you if you like it to have uh, a, a more uh, bluish cast or orangish cast. Um, but these things are specified um, when you take the the color of the object. Excellent. Um, thanks, Ethan and James. So I mean, we've talked a lot about kind of human perception and uh, trying to match product colors or uh, colors of screens, LEDs, things like that. They're kind of, uh, you know, maybe aesthetic or um, be semi-superficial, but also kind of color measurements are taken for a lot of other things um, besides besides uh, aesthetics, um, specifically in, in process control on a lot of different uh, manufacturing and a whole bunch of other process control and um, analyzation. So, James, do you want to talk about a couple any of the uh, any of the projects you've kind of worked on in the past that that have been looking at color, but not really for color's sake, for something else? Yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. So there are these um, applications, like you said, where where they're using color, but they're not really interested in the color. The color is a proxy for something else. And uh, one I can think of uh, right off the top of my head is for. Uh, like oil and gas analysis, there's there's this index that effectively measures the yellowness of the of the fuel, and nobody really cares if fuel is yellow or what color it is, right? Um, but the yellowness actually is a is a result of uh, olefins, which are a result of sort of like. Um, decomposition of some of the some of the compounds that are found in in oils and stuff and so they're really using human perceived yellowness as a proxy for the olefin content um and of course you can imagine this started before the spectrophotometers and stuff were in use there were actually humans trying to compare these you know to to color samples and stuff but um but yeah and you'll, you'll find there's a lot of Standards like that. It, there's in food safety. There's standards like that too, where where the color of uh, ground beef and stuff like that is is really a, a stand-in for like what's happening chemically to that sample. Um, well, actually, one of the most common ones is pH, right? So so pH strip changes color. Um, that chemistry has purposefully been made so that humans can perceive what the what is happening to that chemical, right? To, to, so that in that case, color really is measuring pH. Um, but it's, you know, it's doing it through this human perceived color. Yeah. There's lots of other examples. Um, mm-hmm. you know, in this, t- in this time of, uh, uh, of COVID, um, for example, there's many, um, biological assays where they have proteins that bind to different molecules and they put um, dyes in there and the dyes don't um, have any color until they're they're bound um, in a certain way with certain proteins so 
there are tests out there that test for uh, viruses, let's say, that um, change color to signify that um, that the virus is present in the sample. Just like um, you know, pregnancy tests also have uh, color changing materials that 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 <laughs> there's, tell there's you whether there's a a baby coming or not. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a bunch of examples. Now, now that I think about it. Yeah, you're right, Ethan. Yeah. Um, and, and some of those, I think, uh, even though they're really designed for a human to look at, uh, even those can benefit often from, uh, using a spectrophotometer to measure the color if you're trying to get really fine levels of discrimination. And actually, that is the origin of, uh, Ocean Insight. The, the founder of Ocean Insight was really doing pH measurements, uh, of the ocean. And, um, he wanted to, he really wanted to get a much finer discrimination than a uh, human eye. And also he wanted to be able to do it automatically because he was trying to put these things on buoys out in the ocean. And, and so that's kind of why he built a miniature uh, spectrometer was because he was trying to do color measurements with a machine. That's really awesome. Um, yeah. Kind of, I think, took us first full circle here. Uh, I'd like to thank Ethan and James for taking the time to uh, talk about color today. And um, thanks for listening. Thank you. Yeah, thanks.